the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And I can't believe we're in the 100th finish. Every time you say it, it's just <laughs> mind-blowing. Yep, 111 is the episode count now. And for episode 111, we're going back 30 years to a beloved comedy classic. We are looking at Chris Columbus's Mrs. Doubtfire. So after last week's obsessive love story bad timing, we've got obsessive love of a slightly different kind and a slightly more family-friendly version. It's 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire, and we are going to be reviewing the full-strength, uncut version from Disney+. And only we could make a parallel between a film like Bad Timing and Mrs. Doubtfire and connect themes like that. But, you know, let's kind of let that one slide. Okay, you must have been living under a rock if you haven't heard of or seen Mrs. Doubtfire, but I am going to read the synopsis for the purpose of the podcast because we do that every time. So this synopsis is on IMDb and it's written by the official DVD cover. Not sure which DVD because obviously there's been several, but here goes. How far would an ordinary father go to spend more time with his children? Daniel Hillard is no ordinary father, so when he learns his ex-wife Miranda needs a nanny, he applies for the job. With the perfect wig, a little makeup, and a dress for all occasions, he becomes Mrs. Doubtfire, a devoted British nanny who is hired on the spot. Free to be the woman he never knew he could be, the disguised Daniel creates a whole new life with his entire family. That's all right, as a DVD synopsis, I've read far worse. And <laughs> I was wondering when we went into this one, how badly has it aged over time? Well, not too badly, actually. I was expecting to be covering my eyes through quite a lot of this movie. But it does squeak by, I think, on quite a lot of fronts. There are a couple of lines which I thought, oh, God. But there are only a couple of lines which I thought, oh, God. The central premise, well, it was weird back then. It's weird now. You either go with it or you don't. I think one of the main selling points is Robin Williams. He sells the material. I think in the hands of somebody else, it might have been a bit more creepy, but Robin Williams brings his sort of everyman persona and he's quite wacky and he does a lot of improv and he riffs on quite a lot of things. So some of the weirder elements of the plot get smoothed over by the fact that it's Robin Williams. Somebody else in the role, I don't think it would have worked anywhere near as well. The fact is that it does say British, which is fine. Quite a lot of the time they refer to her as English. English? Really? With that accent? I don't think so. It's a bit like the whole breaking the waves thing. It's a bit kind of isolated Scotland. It's kind of the Emily Watson, oh, Bess McNeil, Bess McNeil sort of thing. It's it's a weird accent. I think Americans will probably listen to that accent and think it is English because everything is England to them. Apart from when I talk in America and they think I am Australian. So, go figure. Can you imagine a Yorkshire Mrs. Doubtfire? <laughs> <laughs> That'd have been brilliant. I'm, I'm, up for, I'm up for the sequel. <laughs> yeah, so I completely agree with you, Darren. I think the reason this film is so beloved and holds up is because of the central performance by Robin Williams. I don't believe any other actor could have played this role. And as you say, the plot is incredibly bizarre, but there's something so endearing about this film. This is a movie that I first saw on VHS when I was around eight years old. I was already familiar with Robin Williams' work. I already knew him from Aladdin, and I'd seen plenty of other films that he'd been in. But this one, I think, for me, this has to be my favourite performance of his. 
because it showcases all his talent, all his humour, the improv, the dramatic side of him as well. It's just all in one package in this film. I used to watch this film countless times. I remember renting it from the library and I literally watch it every day for the time that I had it. And then my parents eventually bought it for me on video. So I had it to watch any time. It was just a film that I'd always put on. It's a bit of a comfort movie. But I think when you look at it from an adult perspective, some elements are quite questionable because even though you are poised to root for Daniel Hillard in this situation, it is very questionable. And I know that when people have reevaluated the movie more in recent times, especially since the Broadway musical dated as well, his behaviour is quite nefarious to a point. You do think like this, this is really next level behaviour that he would go this far. And there's also problematic elements in it. And I know, again, this has come to light recently. Basically, when it comes to the trans community, this film has, you know, especially in recent times, had a little bit of stigma attached to it because it's just the way that it is representing trans people. And even though the character is not trans, it's basically this idea of dressing up as a woman for for laughs. And on this rewatch, as much as I still love the movie, I love the heart of this movie, there were moments where I did cringe a bit. And especially this whole idea of when people in the film, like side characters, realise that he is a man in drag, that they act like he's the other, they act as if this is creepy behaviour, and that's not really a good way of projecting this film, basically, in this day and age, really. Yeah, it's fair. And we always say that we take things in context and we look back of how they were received at the time. But you also do have to look forward, that's right. And it does deal with that in quite a weird way. And you're right, it's the supporting characters that react badly in general. It's one of those things, I think, that now it would be made with slightly more tact and subtlety. There is one line which really shouldn't be there anymore. It's during the sequence where Robin Williams is phoning up Sally Field because she's put an ad in the paper, but he has changed the number. So nobody is ringing Sally Field about the nanny's role, apart from Robin Williams, and he's putting all these different voices on, which gives him a chance to showcase his comedic talents. But at one point, he is pretending to be a German woman, and he basically says, I will not work with the males because I used to be one. And that is played for laughs. And that is the point at which I had I had completely forgotten that line, I have to say. And as soon as that line hit the airwaves, I just thought, oh no, really? We're going to talk about the cuts in Mrs. Doubtfire later on. But this is a line. You could have removed that from this movie. You wouldn't have missed it at all because it's in the middle of a big riffing section where he's doing loads and loads of different characters. And it's just this one line. And it kind of ruins that scene because it's funny up to that point because he's pretending to be all these wacky and outrageous and quite unhinged characters. And then it gets to that point and you just think, that's spoiled this scene now. I don't appreciate what they've done with this. Different times. I'm not excusing the movie for it doing it back then. I'm certainly not excusing it now. But it does cross an interesting line, this movie, because it is playing drag and gender identity for laughs and I think at the time its intentions are more innocent now they stick out because if you're watching it now with 2023 eyes you can see what they're doing and it's very uncomfortable in places but we've got a long history of drag especially in this country and certainly drag is making a huge comeback there's all sorts of drag events now you've got RuPaul's Drag Race which has been going for years And drag is a very big part of British culture. So I think we were ready to accept this. I think where it doesn't quite get it right, it doesn't have a British sensibility towards men dressing up as women. This happened in comedies throughout the decades in Britain. I think there's still something, as you say, of the other about it. Certainly in America, there's something slightly strange, there's something slightly weird. Whereas Brits are kind of, oh, it's just some guy in a dress. That's fine. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I have actually been to see the stage musical. I saw it in Manchester last year when it was in previews. It is now going through its West End run. And I can confidently say that they have cut out any uncomfortable references 
They've actually set the story in the present day as well. They develop the gay couple a lot more in it as well, more than the film. Even though I felt in the movie there was not anything too bad, I think they treated those characters fairly well in the movie. There was a lot more acceptance towards them, but they really do develop them better in the show. They even give them a subplot about adoption. So that's really interesting because it's trying to show you about how like all families can be blended and family is family, no matter what shape or size it comes in. So that's what it's trying to evoke. As I can tell you, they've completely reworked it so none of the offensive stuff is in there. So I think that's one good thing because obviously taking something so dated and reviving it, especially in a new context, they had to be very careful so they weren't going to alienate any audiences. The one bit of scrutiny that the musical has come under, there is a sequence where it's the moment where Daniel is getting his makeover and the song is called Make Me a Woman and it alludes to all these different iconic women in history being celebrities, public figures. And the first lot that come out are women, just dressed like the ensemble. And then when they talk about older women, such as Margaret Thatcher, that kind of type, they get men in drag to do that bit. And I think that's it's come under fire a little bit there. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Considering this version they've got on Disney Plus is the full cut, I believe, it's... As you say, that yeah, they could have taken that joke out. There were just certain moments that you say you just really do cringe by. But I think now we've got this out of the way, we can just look at the movie. as it, I mean, it's still a very nostalgic movie to me. I think watching it with different eyes now, obviously, it was a beloved childhood classic for me. Seeing it now after becoming a parent, while it does hit differently, I think the court scenes are still especially hard to sit through. And Robin Williams does deliver such a vulnerable performance there. And his words are true, like how he feels about his children. I think that's all very authentic. So there's so much in it. And I think the acting in it still holds up. I think there's a fantastic cast in this movie. And I just don't think anyone else could have played these roles. I mean, the young cast are fantastic in it. They're very believable as siblings. They definitely cast it well. You really do buy into this being a family and you can invest in them. And I think that's why this is always held up because you really care about the characters. It really takes its time to develop everybody as well, which I like about it. And this movie is running at two hours, five minutes. However, there is a abundance of deleted scenes for Mrs. Doubtfire. Some of them only came to light following Robin Williams's death. The amount of content they cut out of this, and I can understand why they did, but it really adds more and more layers onto it, I feel. I've seen the deleted scenes too, and it does introduce a couple of subplots and opens out some of the plots that are already there. I can understand why. You can't have a movie like this running two hours and 30 minutes. Not back then, anyway. You might have it running now because movies do run longer. Yeah, some of the subplots are not necessary. The, the one with the neighbour, although that's quite amusing, that doesn't really need to be there, and I can understand why they got rid of that one. The weird thing about it when I saw it again was, and it sort of landed the first time I saw it, but it really did land this time, was because it's Robin Williams and because he's so beloved and because everybody likes Robin Williams as a guy and likes him as a comedian and identifies very much with the Joker and the clowning about that he does, Sally Field's character, especially in the first half of the movie, He's kind of painted as the villain. She's not very sympathetically drawn in the first half of the movie. Eventually the movie does come around, but it does basically say Robin Williams' character is really great, even though he's arsing about and he's a bit of a disaster and he doesn't hold down a proper job. It is basically saying, because Sally Field is some successful corporate designer type, she is the enemy in some way. And it's a weird thing. As well, I understand why they've done it. It does create some tension originally, but Sally Field is as as a villain. I don't see Sally Field. She's really nice in this movie, and it does explain her behaviour. But even from the start, you think, I understand why she's doing this. Yes, the courtroom scenes where she gets the custody, it is really heartbreaking to sit through. But there's not a point in that scene at which I thought, this is some kind of injustice because they lay it out as to why she gets the kids because he doesn't have a job, he doesn't have a place to stay. And they only say it's temporary, but the film seems to go to quite great lengths in its first act to say, hmm, Sally feels 
she's bad on some level because, you know, we all love Robin Williams so much. And I get why you have to side with him at the start, because he's the one that's got to overcome all of the hardships to get to where he wants to be. It didn't spoil my enjoyment of the movie, but it did stick out quite a lot because Sally Field isn't the sort of people you think would play this like really awful person. And she isn't a really awful person. One thing I really did spot this time is that I thought that Pierce Brosnan was much more of an arse than he actually is in this movie. He's not an arse at all. Basically, he comes on and you think, oh, he's going to be this horrible, slimy, awful character that you just want Robin Williams to get one over on all the time. He isn't really. I mean, he turns out to be quite a decent bloke. I think the movie pulls a little bit of a switch on you. But I think this time he came across much less like the enemy. He's just a guy that happens to be in a situation where he wants to conduct a relationship with Sally Field's character. Now, part of us thinks we want her to end up back with Robin Williams because that's how Hollywood endings work. We want her to end up at the place that we came in, basically, or before we came in, when things haven't fallen apart. However, as the movie goes on, there's a weird thing in that, certainly in that last act, where you actually think, actually, it's not Pierce Brosnan that's being the arsehole here. It's Robin Williams that's being the arsehole. He really is in the last act, and he's completely spiralling out of control, to the point where he actually nearly kills Pierce Brosnan's character. And at that point... Your sympathies just go the other way completely. The movie has a way of getting you back on Robin Williams' side. But it's interesting that the movie doesn't go the ways that you kind of think it's going to for most of the time. It does have a couple of little switches up its sleeve. And considering I thought, am I going to be able to sit through two hours of this again? I'd seen it loads. I thought, do I want to sit through this again? Because I've seen it so many times. Well, so the movies, I've seen it on video, I've seen it on TV. But I was quite happy to sit for there for two hours. It was a decent time flyer. It's sentimental, but it's not overly sentimental. It's funny. It doesn't fall into being too serious or too light-hearted either. It does understand that there are stakes in this movie. And at the end, even though it looks like everything is going to fall apart at the end, you know that when you're checking your watch and you think, well... Everything has fallen to bits. Oh, hang on a minute, there's 10 minutes to go. It's all going to be all right. And I think it's so enjoyable and easy to watch that you don't feel it's two hours at all. Like, it does pace itself really nicely. But yeah, going back to what you were saying about Piers Brosnan's character of Stu. So the original intent was he was going to be an all-out villain. But then when Piers Brosnan was cast and he had a more sympathetic nature to him, they decided to change it up. And I'm so glad they did, because I think that would have just been too black and white it just having oh the new boyfriend as the bad guy i think it's actually more realistic how they've done it and to be honest every time i've watched this movie i never felt like i was rooting for daniel and miranda to get back together at all i think it's more i was just rooting for him to be able to have joint custody of the children i think that was the main goal with it and i think the fact that it does have that happy ending in that way it was really important so the original writer had written the alleged downbeat ending where they don't get back together and apparently because it's Hollywood they really wanted to have the big happy ending where they get back together everything's fine again but that just didn't land at all and then they rehired the original writer when they decided to go back to the original plan for it and I think there's just no way they could have those characters back together after everything they've been through in this whole film after the whole gym you could never imagine after what he's done she would ever accept that back and i think the ship had sailed between them they just weren't right for each other it was that whole thing of opposites don't always attract and her character is more suited to the piers brosnan role again that restaurant scene incredibly mean-spirited what mrs doubtfire slash daniel does and there is a deleted scene where you physically see him go into the kitchen put on a different persona altogether again and talks to like another chef and basically puts all this cayenne pepper on his Brosnan's food, knowing that he's going to have an allergic reaction. And I'm glad they took that scene out because as I say, it was incredibly mean spirited and uncomfortable to watch. And how can you support him when he's basically trying to kill this guy who's not that bad anyway? 
The only kind of negative side to the Piers Brosnan character they kept in was when he referred to the kid's real dad as a loser, and that's obviously the famous drive-by fruiting scene. That's the only thing, but you have to accept that obviously he'll have been told all this information by Miranda, so that's why he's going to react like that. Again, I think everything's very natural in this film in terms of how the characters interact with each other. It's just they've really invested in in their roles in this and, and just made it so believable, and I think these are people you can't imagine coming across in real life. The, the film flows so nicely. So as I say, with the deleted scenes, we can understand why they were cut. I mean, there's quite an intense deleted scene that follows the restaurant scene where Daniel goes back to the house and has this confrontation with um, Miranda and the kids are upset. And it, it's, a, it's a really intense moment. Very well acted. But I think, again, I think that would have really slowed down the pace and you're getting towards the end of the movie you kind of want to conclude it somewhere and having that moment in there as well as then probably going to the court scenes the tv show scenes i think it would have just been too much but it's interesting to get that insight of what happened after that whole restaurant debacle because again that is just one of the most insane scenes in cinema history just the way he's going back and forth everybody remembers it it's, it's honestly classic robin williams it's it's a great scene for some people, if you don't like farce, that might stretch credibility at the end. But it's quite good how he's going backwards and forwards and he has to change from one thing to another and he's got two different dinner dates going on. He has to try and build his TV career, but he's also trying to make sure that Stu doesn't get with Miranda. So it is a fun scene. It goes on for quite a long time as well. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as it goes along in a comedy way. You're right, though. Having that scene finish and then it goes straight to a blazing row between Miranda and Daniel. That's too brutal. You know what's happened. By the end of that restaurant scene, you know that everything has come to a crashing halt. So you don't need another scene where they're just tearing strips off each other. It actually works with just having the restaurant scene end and basically Robin Williams says, right, show's over. And then it goes into the courtroom bit. So it would be too much. You know, it's just layering misery on misery at the end. And it's not meant to be a particularly miserable movie, despite the fact that it deals with some reasonably emotional and heavy topics. It doesn't do it with a heavy touch. It does put you through the ringer a little bit, but it's only Hollywood PG-13 ringer stuff. You're not going to be coming out of it emotionally destroyed because it's not there to do that. It's a far better movie, I think, than people give it credit for. I think people looked at it as a bit of fluff. And I kind of think, you know, if you want to see it as a bit of fluff, it's fine. It's undemanding. You will get a bit of a laugh out of it. But there's some depth in it. I'm not saying it's the most intelligent drama about relationships ever put to celluloid. But it's a lot better than a lot of cookie-cutter, template 90s comedies. This does have something going for it. It does have a bit of heart as well. It's something that if you if you haven't seen it, and I can't believe that there's many people on planet Earth that haven't seen Mrs. Doubtfire by now. I'm pretty sure everybody has come across it at some point. But if you haven't, and you like Robin Williams, this is definitely something to check out. It's not quite as extreme as things like Good Morning Vietnam, and it's certainly not as extreme as something like One Hour Photo. It's a different Robin Williams performance than One Hour Photo. Personally, that's my favourite Robin Williams performance ever, but it's a very, very different Robin Williams to the one you get here. If you like Mark and Mindy Robin Williams, this is the movie to go for. If you like terrifying, dark Robin Williams, One Hour Photo is the one to go for. And we have covered One Hour Photo, and it's an amazing movie. But this is pretty good as well. Yeah, I love One Hour Photo. I really enjoyed us revisiting that for our episode a couple of years back. This movie, I think it just holds a special place in my heart. It's a special movie for me. And I think this is very much mainstream Robin Williams. I think this is the most mainstream performance of his you're going to get, whereas One Hour Photo is more obscure. But it just showcases what a talented man he was. I just think it just hits hard, especially when you see that there was a 25th reunion. I'm sure there's going to be a reunion for the 30th where the um, remaining living cast are going to be getting together. There's a fantastic interview that you can check out on YouTube with Piers Brosnan, Mara Wilson, Lisa Jacob and Matthew Lawrence all reminiscing about the film. And obviously you just feel Robin's loss. 
there's just no doubt about it. He had such an impact. And I think everybody who worked with him had such wonderful things to say about him. It all shines through on screen. Like he really looked out for those kids. And there's lots of behind the scenes nuggets you can hear about how he impacted their lives and things. So that's always really interesting. Talking of the kids in the movie as well, there's one scene that, again, I think hasn't aged well. And that's the scene where Chris, the son, discovers that Mrs. Doubtfire is a he, a she, that whole moment. And in the stage show, they have actually changed that as well. They've changed it so that when he opens the bathroom door, he sees him without his mask on, rather than focus on the whole genital side of it. I think this is a movie, even though it's a a family movie, I think it will have a lot of questions surrounding it. I don't know how I felt about it at eight years old. I'm sure I had a lot of questions for my parents when watching this. But some of the more risque innuendos in it definitely would have gone over kids' heads because, again, I find what's interesting when there's a movie that you feel you know inside out that you've watched from childhood, revisit again as an adult and it's kind of like watching a whole different movie because you're understanding all the jokes as well and I think some of it I was feeling like whoa he really went that far and that brings me to one of my favorite facts about this movie that Robin Williams had free reign completely Chris Columbus embraced it he basically let him go to town and whatever he wanted to do they sometimes took 30 takes on a scene it just because he improvised so much, like he'd do scripted version and then he would ad-lib. And I think that's so interesting because they've got all this footage for this movie. But I think sometimes he literally went way too far. And what we're going to discuss now, Darren has compiled a history of all the cuts of Mrs. Doubtfire, which I, I love all this kind of stuff. I find it really, really interesting. But when I was watching it last night with my husband, Phil, Phil saw it in cinema when it first came out and again, it's a movie he's rewatched over the years. And when it came to the restaurant scene where the kids are excused to leave the table, Mrs. Doubtfire is talking to Stu and he's making a lot of sexual references about Miranda to a quite disturbingly uncomfortable point. And we both sat thinking, I don't remember this scene going on so long. I remember the line about a piece of jewellery is wanting more than a piece of her heart. I remember that line. And when I went then to watch this interview with the cast, they do discuss this in depth and say that how the kids did genuinely leave the table so they could get those takes. And it was actually the close-ups they were focusing on at this point. Robin Williams was really pushing the boundaries with Pierce Brosnan in this scene. And he just went so far just to get these really genuine reactions from him. So they talk about that. And... Again, it felt like, oh, I feel like I'm watching a different film now because this, I do not remember this from the cut I would have watched. So bear in mind, I would probably mainly have watched it on VHS and then possibly on TV. I know I bought a DVD of it. Can't tell you how many times I would have watched the DVD, but to me, that scene was completely new on the Disney Plus version. So yeah, I'm going to get into this section of the podcast now talking about all the cuts. Yeah, the version on Disney Plus is definitely the full version with all of the dialogue in that scene. When it was released in the US, that scene was basically put in to get it a PG-13 rating because the distributors in the States thought that PG was a bit bland. PG-13 is a bit more edgy. So that's why they added those comments into that scene to make it a bit more racy, to draw in teenagers, to draw in more of an audience because PG stuff was seen to be a bit weak, and PG-13 is like, oh, there must be something, there must be something dodgy in PG-13 movies. This worked fine in America, worked slightly against it in the UK, because Fox wanted the original version of the movie to be a PG. When it went through the British Board of Film Classification, they said, nope, there's too many sexual references in this, you're going to have a 12. So when it first came out in the cinema, it was a 12-rated movie. Fox decided that they didn't want to make any cuts to it. It went out as a 12. And it played in the cinemas for about five months. Now, while this was all going on, one thing about the BBFC is that it's, it's basically an advisory rating for local councils in the UK. And the local councils can override a rating for a movie. And quite a lot of them wanted to because... 
families were saying that they couldn't take their kids to see Mrs. Doubtfire. So they had various viewings of the movies and they decided in quite a lot of local authorities that the movie should be rated PG and not 12. Because as you alluded to earlier, a lot of the sexual references were just going straight over the kids' heads anyway. They didn't understand what was going on in that scene. So they went back. The BBFC looked at it again. They suggested one set of cuts to the dialogue rather than three. So you didn't get the entire list of things that Robin Williams is going on. But it was a lot more than you originally got. So they suggested one cut to it of a few seconds. And then the 12 rated version was withdrawn. So at this point, the version in the cinema is a PG. Fast forward to the video release and the pre-cut PG version that was there at that point was also past PG on video. When it got to DVD, they decided that they would revisit it. The BBFC looked at it, went back to Fox and were about to tell them that the uncut version of it was going to be a PG because the guidelines had changed on sexual references. However, Fox had already started authoring the disc with the cut version. So they just put it out with the cut there. 2003, it passed into the BBFC again. This time, they passed the entirely uncut version as a PG. So the version that we saw on Disney Plus, 2003, you can get that on disc. It's a PG. The 2012 Blu-ray, the guidelines had changed again. So when they put it in for the Blu-ray in 2012, they now said, no, we can't allow this stuff at PG anymore. It's back to being a 12 rating. So we're now, 2012, we've got a 12 rating. And the most recent submission to the BBFC was for a 2014 cinema re-release. And it was given a 12A rating, which does actually mean it's an advisory 12. You can take kids in. If you're an adult, they don't have to be 12. But the advisory is that some of the material ought to be for 12 years and up. So that's the slightly odd history of Mrs. Doubtfire. Cuts, no cuts, some cuts. There are basically various versions of Mrs. Doubtfire that have played in cinemas, on DVD and on Blu-ray. So at the moment, if you get the Mrs. Doubtfire Blu-ray, it's back to the 12 rating in the UK. It never shifted from uh, the rating in the States, it's PG-13. But over here, you know, we've got to make it complicated. Oh, also as well, at one point, because you can't have a film playing in two different certificated versions, there was the possibility that they would have to decide whether or not the PG or the 12 version would have to play. But because the guidelines had changed, at that point, everything was PG. So they didn't come across that hurdle you're talking about video nasties that have had cuts and bands and stuff this movie has had more different versions and more cuts than some of the video nasties that i've been watching over the years so you know if you get mrs doubtfire it completely depends on where you watch it and which year you got your disc from it's absolutely fascinating and crazy isn't it typical bbfc really isn't it I wasn't actually fully aware of all this. It was just only it dawned on me. And I promise you guys, I didn't instantly go Mandela Effect. I did not do that because I know that isn't the most logical point we go on this podcast, but no. Yeah, I just find that so interesting. And I think it's nice kind of being able to see it completely uncut. But there's rumours circulating that there is an R-rated version of Mrs. Doubtfire. And that is literally just because of Robin Williams' ad-libbing. I mean, if they'd included everything, all his racy jokes... Who knows what we would have come up with. But this is going to lead us on now to talking about some fun, interesting facts about the film as well. This is just a few I picked out that I thought was uh, quite interesting. So I have to forewarn Darren. I am going to probably trigger you with this first I know fact. What, I know what you're going to say. I know <laughs> what you're going to say. You get, get it over with. Come on, let's do it. Get it over. See, this is a fact that I completely don't believe. I don't think this was everything, and I don't know where it came from. So... This is quote for quote IMDb. According to some rumours, it's been suggested parts of the story were originally intended for a potential plot of a film version of the television series Home Improvement 1991 at the time. 
with the story being Tim getting divorced from Jill and being forced to pretend to be a 60-year-old nanny in order to spend time with the kids. It's been said that the reason for this not happening was that Tim Allen and Patricia Richardson hated the idea, plus they didn't feel home improvement needed a film version. And then that leads us, there's been this whole thing where apparently Tim Allen was the first choice for this movie. I think this is complete bullshit because Robin Williams and his wife at the time secured the rights from the novel of Mrs. Doubtfire, and they were making it into a movie as a star vehicle for Robin Williams anyway. So the fact there's all this suggestion that all these other actors... I mean, there's countless names. There's no point saying them all on here. You can Google it. But the Tim Allen one was pretty fascinating, not just to trigger Darren because he's not a fan and we're not allowed to ever do the Santa Claus Mary Podmas because of this. Just putting that out there. Yeah, I think this would not have suited Home Improvement. I mean, the whole premise of Home Improvement, they were a really tight-knit family from what I remember. I used to watch that show when I was a kid and I just couldn't see that being plausible even though Tim Allen has got comedic talents, he's not the same level as Robin Williams with the improvisation, the voice acting in the same way, I don't feel. No, I don't think that would have worked at all. I've also read that Tim Allen was possibly in line for the stew role at some point. I can't see Tim Allen in that role either because him versus Pierce Brosnan, you can kind of think, yeah, Pierce Brosnan, good-looking guy, very confident, very suave. He's a bit of a threat to the Daniel character. But if you unveil the threat to him and it's Tim Allen, you just think, why? Why is it Tim Allen? You want Daniel to be up against somebody who is different to him in every way. If you've got another guy who's a bit jerky, then you're basically swapping Daniel 1 for Daniel 2. And to be perfectly honest, if you're swapping Robin Williams with Tim Allen, that's kind of like swapping... Waitrose with Poundland. I don't really think that that rumour holds any weight. It's a nice thing to talk about, but I can't see it. And you're right, because they were developing it as a vehicle for Robin Williams. So why would they suddenly think, you know, you know, it'd be good in this movie instead of Robin Williams. Tim Allen should be in the lead, which is a sentence that no movie executive has ever said. Yeah, again, I have no clue where this whole thing came from. It was news to me, but I thought it was really interesting. I promise I didn't do it just to annoy you. I can't help what what rumours are out there about movies I like. (laughs) Before we move on, I'm going to return back to talking about the novel that the movie was adapted from. It's an older children's book called Madame Doubtfire, or alias Madame Doubtfire, I believe, by the author Anne Fine. She's a very well-known children's author. I remember picking up the book, but it was after I had seen the film and I was already an established fan of the film. And I thought, you know, I'm going to give this a read. I'm curious. But nothing really significant plays in my mind about this book because I think I remember finding it really boring. This again shows that this whole story and this concept only works because of Robin Williams. So I pulled up some facts off TV tropes about the differences from the movie and the book because, again, I always find this type of content really interesting. So the notable differences include the parents are already divorced at the start of the story. Miranda is a much meaner, bitchier character. Daniel is no saint either, though as he fantasises about ways to kill her in front of the kids. Book for children. (laughs) Daniel has a passion for gardening. In the end, he becomes not the host of a kid's show, but Miranda's new gardener. All three kids see through the Mrs. Doubtfire disguise, even Christopher, though it takes him a little longer. Mrs. Doubtfire doesn't wear a latex mask and padding. She wears a turban. This is apparently enough to fool Miranda. And finally, rather than learn housekeeping skills, Daniel forces the children to clean the house by threatening that they'll never see him again if he's found out. That is just such a dark twist. I mean, I know this is the original material, but my God, this was written for children. This sounds bleak as hell. (laughs) Yeah, bloody hell. I mean, that's a bit of a plot twist. I haven't read the book, I have to say. But from what you're saying, I think they've raised the stakes quite noticeably in the movie. And they've clearly allowed Robin Williams to give free reign to his comedic improv talents, which does make the movie, really. As with quite a lot of other stuff that Robin Williams appears in, the movies do fly when he's allowed to do exactly what he wants. And they just film it. 
in the case of Mrs. Doubtfire, Chris Columbus has said that there is enough material in there to make it an R-rated movie if they wanted to. But also, they said, you know, it's a family movie. We didn't want to make it an R. But some of his riffing was over the line for a PG-13 movie. He said it was funny, Said, but we couldn't use the material. Now, there are other people that said that there was even an NC-17 version of Mrs. Doubtfire. Bullshit. How would you get an NC-17 from Mrs. Doubtfire? What could he have been talking about? Because clearly there is no graphic violence. There's certainly no sex in this movie. Now, some of the verbal stuff he would have had to do to get it an NC-17, Robin Williams would not have done that in that context. It's people taking a rumour and expanding upon it to its nth degree. Mrs. Doubtfire is an NC-17. That is just not going to happen. You're never going to see that version. You're never going to see the R-rated version of it, really. That is probably in Chris Columbus's vault, which he can call upon when he wants to have a bit of a laugh. People will just grab hold of any old room. I mean, the Tim Allen thing is like, yeah. At the time, Tim Allen was a fairly big TV star and he was gravitating towards movies as well. So it was like, well, who could play this? Yeah, Tim Allen. I'm sure Tim Allen and Robin Williams were attached to lots and lots and lots of different movies that they never even came close to appearing in. So it is just a Hollywood rumour mill. The thing about Mrs. Doubtfire is it was a box office success. It was the second highest grossing movie of 1993, coming second only to Jurassic Park. Wow, that's an impressive feat, considering you've got this huge blockbuster about dinosaurs, and then you've got this wholesome family comedy. I think, again, it's a testament to the performances in this film and the script and everything and the ad-libbing, just everything. This movie hit gold because it had all the right ingredients. It was right place, right time, right cast, right crew. Everything just slotted into place. And I think, as I said, it, it's such a special movie, and I think that is completely why. We have touched on this, but another fact that I'd like to talk about is we've got to talk about Polly Holiday, because I feel a bit bad for this actress. <laughs> so she shot quite a lot of scenes in a subplot about Daniel and Miranda's neighbour, and they all ended up on the cutting room floor. You do see glimpses of her in the movie. She does have a short scene at the beginning. She's the one who blows the whistle on Daniel having the kids party with all the barn animals which is just absolutely batshit but you know just suspend your disbelief sometimes as I say with this movie I find the heart of it and the human side of it very believable but some of it you really have to suspend your disbelief it's a comedy it's going to go for wacky comedy moments again quote for IMDb Polly Holiday's character of the Hillard family next door neighbour Gloria Chain was originally scripted as a large supporting character and had a bigger role in the film Many scenes were filmed in which Daniel, as Mrs. Doubtfire, gets even with Gloria, as Gloria tells Mrs. Doubtfire that she heard rumours that Daniel cheated on Miranda and abused his children. This leads Daniel, as Mrs. Doubtfire, observing Gloria's passion for gardening to give Gloria a formula that will help her flowers bloom better, and the secret ingredient in the formula is dog urine. Several scenes show Gloria actually getting the dog urine and applying it to her flowers, which kills them, and upsets her very much. Due to time constraints, all of the scenes were cut out, and as a result, in the final cut of the film, the character of Gloria is only seen once during the opening credits before she calls Miranda to complain about Daniel throwing a birthday party next door. And later, right before Daniel, Mrs. Doubtfire rips the logo off Stu's Mercedes-Benz. You can see a brief glimpse of Gloria doing some gardening. All of Gloria's deleted scenes can be seen in special features on the DVD. Again, this actually showcases Mrs. Doubtfire's more mean-spirited side, it's quite uncomfortable scenes to watch, really, and it does slow things down, so I completely get why they cut it. Because what I find interesting in the final cut as well, you've got this nosy neighbour character, but then you also see a brief glimpse of Miranda's mother. It's a scene where he's saying goodbye to the children and she stood in the doorway and he's making jokes about her being this bat lax and that type of thing. It's kind of interesting how there are these side characters slotted into it. You also hear a phone call with Daniel's mother as well on the phone, to his brother at the beginning of the film. So you get a lot of world building in this. You get an understanding of the wider family without having to see them that developed in it, which I do find quite interesting. As I say, it really sucks for the actress <laughs> that she put all that work in and her character got completely cut. But at least people can enjoy the scenes on the special features, so all is not lost. Yeah, the subplot's quite mean, and I can understand why they jettisoned it, because. 
it doesn't really show either of them in a very good light. Gloria's not a sympathetic character at all, but Daniel does some pretty hideous things to her because he knows that she's a keen gardener. So he just takes away the one thing that she really loves. So he kills all the plants. Indirectly, he makes her kill all the plants. It's awful behaviour. I don't think you would lose sympathy because you've got that thing where Gloria is just as bad. But it's not necessary in this movie. But I do like the fact that it does take its time introducing you to all the characters. You don't see Mrs. Doubtfire until 37 minutes into the movie. So it's a long time before you see Mrs. Doubtfire. There's a lot of world building and there's plot to get through. And going back to what you were saying quite a while ago in the podcast, the gay couple, they're not treated as a joke in this movie. Yes, they do some humorous things, but it just happens to be that his brother is in a relationship with another man. And it's never really drawn attention to other than the fact that Harvey Firestein says a couple of bitchy things about actresses because Robin Williams says things like, can you make me look like Joan Collins? And Harvey Firestein's character goes, no, I don't think I've got the energy to do that. (laughs) And it's not that kind of 90s trope where gay characters are treated as as like a punchline or the butt of a joke. These are two guys that just happen to be helping him out and they're not treated badly at all by the plot. The only thing I can say is that they're not front and centre and you don't see them an awful lot. But at the time, I'm guessing that it was probably a bit of a step forward anyway. I'm not saying that just having them in the background as supporting characters is an amazingly pro-LGBTQ plus moment in a movie. But at least it's not dragging them down to the level where it's like, well, we've got a gay character in this movie. Let's make him the punchline of everything, which is... For a Hollywood movie of that time, it's surprising and reasonably refreshing. The only thing I can put towards it as a negative is that there's not more of him in the movie. But at the same time, how would you have got him in the movie more? Because they come up with the Mrs. Doubtfire makeup and they come up with the look. And basically, that's what they're there to do in the movie. There's nothing really more for them to do after that. So... I don't think it stands as a magnificent example of pro-gay characters in the movie, but it's certainly a lot better than a lot of the stuff that was coming out in the 90s where it would just either have no gay characters at all or they'd be treated incredibly badly. Yeah, and as I said, what's really good with the stage show is how they do bring these characters in a lot more and get them more involved in the plot. From what I recall, there is a scene where Mrs. Selner comes to inspect the apartment Daniel's brother and his partner are there. Again, it's a farcical setup, but they're trying to cover for him, and it's very obvious what's going on, and the brother gets really nervous and high-pitched about it all. So I remember they do incorporate it in, but I think, obviously, certain things that work on stage won't necessarily work in film. It would not have seemed realistic to bring them in to the main scenes or anything like that. There didn't seem to be a suggestion that they have a good relationship with Miranda, so they'd go around her place. There was never that sort of suggestion in it. It was very much separate family units. A couple more facts getting to this one I thought was really sweet and it's one that shows just the impact of when a movie becomes really popular and how people just want to get the inside story. So Robin Williams used much of his real childhood nanny to characterise Mrs Doubtfire. When British tabloids found this out, they went looking for his former nanny. They found his real nanny, Lolly, in a Michigan nursing home, and the reporters and photographers flocked to the little town to get an interview with her. Lolly balked at the attention, and Dan played her impressive role. The local newspaper ran a story of Lolly with the heading The Real Mrs. Doubtfire, so obviously they were just looking for you know where the idea of this character came from. And I think Robin Williams does a tremendous job in making you feel like she's a real person. You can separate the two characters as if they were two different people in the way he plays this. And I think that's a testament, again, to his skill as an actor and a performer. Another interesting story, and I do remember hearing rumours of this floating around at the time, and I feel just as dubious about it as I did then now, because I don't think this would have worked. But talk of a sequel began in 2003, with the script being written by Bonnie Hunt. Robin Williams was set to return in disguise as an old nanny-like in the first movie. Due to problems with the script, rewriting began in early 2006 as Williams was allegedly unhappy with the plot. 
The film was expected to be released in late 2007, but following further script problems, the sequel was declared scrapped in mid-2006. The sequel story was originally said to involve Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire moving close to his daughter's college so he could keep an eye on her. Serious discussions regarding the sequel reignited in April 2014, with an announcement that Williams and Chris Columbus would be teaming up with Fox 2000 Pictures to produce the sequel. Williams' sudden death just four months later ultimately sealed the project's fate once and for all, and no one replaced him either. I just don't see how a sequel would work. This movie is a one-off completely. I didn't need to see anything more. I think it closes on a really positive note. It's got that uplifting factor as it ends. It basically tells children, you know, even though your parents are separated, it's not your fault and you can still be happy because they can still make a happy family environment for you. It just closes on such a lovely note and I don't think it needed to be expanded. And with that idea, him following his daughter to college, she would know it was him. He's already a TV star. People be aware of Mrs Doubtfire. I don't get how that would plausibly work. It seems very odd as that's all they could come up with. That doesn't work at all because it closes off everything it needs to do in the first movie. And you're right, Mrs Doubtfire is already a celebrity. Why would she suddenly turn up at a college? Nothing about that works. I don't think you can use this idea twice. And I'm not surprised that it was stuck in development hell for so long. Even when there was rumours that he was going to reprise his role, how? How were they going to develop it? I don't think it's a movie that stretches to any sort of sequel or franchise. It's self-contained. It's all resolved at the end of the movie. There's no reason to resurrect the character at all. Absolutely. And this is just to throw in a bit of fun for you all. Three years ago, there was a Shazam update that links to Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to our Shazam Kazam episode, just a shameless self-plug here, we just had a blast doing that episode. So please check it out. This is where Mandela effects just completely go off the boil and I think people are completely stretching. But when I was just having an, a look for fun on Reddit to see if there was anything linking Mrs. Doubtfire, there was a post three years ago, Shazam update. I remember it was Matthew Lawrence who played the boy in Shazam opposite Mara Wilson. They got the pairing from Mrs. Doubtfire, which was released in 1993. Look at him in Doubtfire and tell me that's not him. So I think that is just hilarious. And and again, I don't think the comments are really supporting it because there's no real evidence for that. But yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire did set a template for that kind of kid-sibling pairings in films, I suppose. But, you know, we all know Mara Wilson went on to be Matilda. That was her next major role after Mrs. Doubtfire. Because I think I'd seen Matilda first and then being told that, oh, the girl from Matilda is younger in Mrs. Doubtfire. I remembered that. I was already aware of Matthew Lawrence as well because I used to watch Brotherly Love and then he went on Boy Meets World. Interestingly, because I do listen to the Brotherly Love podcast of the Lawrence Brothers, I'd be curious if he was ever asked this question and I'd love to see his reaction to this <laughs> about starring in a movie that never existed. <laughs> yeah, the reach of Shazam knows no bounds it permeates every bit of film culture episode 61 shameless plug from me if you want to check out kazam shazam whatever the movie ends up being titled then episode 61 is where it's at it's just a weird weird concept shazam and people will just not let this go and it's had loads and loads of different casts and it's had loads and loads of different plots and they've been dragging in various characters from various movies over the last few decades, and it is showing no signs of stopping. There has been so much talk about Shazam that I half expect that the movie will actually turn up at some point. Everybody talks about this movie. It has not died since the release of the Shaq movie. There is this alternate universe in which Sinbad played a genie and it shows no sign of ceasing everybody has a theory about this movie which i am here for but every other piece of cinematic art is getting dragged into this shazam vortex including mrs doubtfire 
So I'm sure that at some point we're going to be talking about possibly some art movie that ends up being part of the Shazamiverse. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we would have all remembered if there was another movie where those two child stars appeared in together because they were going to capitalise See the Kids from Mrs Doubtfire in this new family comedy with a genie, but played by Simbat. Because obviously you've got the genie link with Robin Williams and Aladdin. Everything's connected. It's pure madness. But before we discuss the overall ratings that the movie has as it stands in 2023, quick question for you, Darren. What do you feel about the soundtrack for Mrs. Doubtfire? Pretty good. I like the soundtrack for this movie. It's, it's obviously of an era where they were cultivating specific sounds for the soundtrack. And it was probably one of those movies where they had somebody gathering tracks. So you've got memorable bits during the movie. Obviously... How are you not going to have a movie about a guy who is dressing in drag without having Dude Looks Like a Lady by Aerosmith? That's the obvious choice for a track. Absolutely. And the songs in this movie, I only like really associate them with this movie. So House of Pain, Jump Around. In my head, I see Robin Williams, Matthew Lawrence and the kids on the table dancing in that party. When I hear... Frankie Valley Four Seasons Walk Like a Man, I envisioned Robin Williams dressed as Mrs. Dabber walking up that hill with a bag of groceries or flowers or whatever it is. That has always burned into my brain. And when I hear these songs, I think of this movie, including the Aerosmith one as well. It's just that whole thing. They're just synonymous with the film for me, even though they're their own works and existed prior to this film coming out. So I do think that is quite fun. I love the score as well. The score is really nice and really emotional as well so it's got definitely a good soundtrack howard shaw wrote the the soundtrack yeah. howard shaw interesting fact about howard shaw howard shaw got his start scoring a movie which was a video nasty in britain because howard shaw wrote the score for i miss you hugs and kisses starring El Kazama, which was also known as drop dead dearest in this country as well howard shaw started with a movie that was banned in this country. Naughty Howard Shaw. See, everything links back. And I do find it really interesting that how this movie, Mrs. Doubtfire now, is so linked to British culture because the show itself has done better over here than it did over in America. And I think obviously it just speaks to British audiences better than it does to US audiences. So again, it's something that anyone in the UK just absolutely adores this movie, adores the story. That's really interesting to me that it's a more of a British thing, even though it's this American movie. And, I mean, if it had been an actual British film, I don't know, you know it'd been too kitchen sink and gritty, and it would just have been... It just yeah. wouldn't have had the same vibe. <laughs> yeah, it would have been like a Mike Lee movie, and you'd have come out feeling really, really depressed. It'd have had a terribly bleak ending, and you'd have gone out thinking, oh, God... So it currently stands at a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. Still pretty high, but I would have probably expected more given how iconic and classic this film is. And then it has a 70% tomato meter and a 77% audience score. So pretty I good. feel it's, it's probably, yeah, it's good, but I think it's probably dropped over the years. Maybe mm. people don't love it as much, but I, I don't know. I think everyone's got a bit of love for Mrs. Doubtfire. I think everybody remembers it. It's an integral part of your formative cinematic growth because typically it's a film that you would have watched in your youth and you know if it's a family film you're going to gather around with your parents and sit and watch it if you're young so I think that's a testament to it and it's a movie that I will never tire of watching so it's really nice to go back to it and as I say it hits differently since becoming a parent you do feel a bit more emotional even though it's always been emotional and him reading the letter at the end of the film that's always going to generate a tear so and i think what is powerful about this movie one minute it's making you laugh out loud the next minute it's making you tear up i think if they just recut it a little bit and took out some of the uncomfortableness in it even that scene with the kids just laughing at him when he's getting into his bodysuit and then looking in pure horror when they see him that it, it was just it was just gross it just did not feel very comfortable in this day and age so i think if they just tweaked it a little as you say took out like any racial jokes as well maybe there is a race related joke yeah. very near the end about a certain type of shop that proliferated in britain during that era and again i was like 
not necessary, really not necessary. Doesn't enhance the scene one bit, doesn't forward the comedy. Quite surprised that Robin Williams went for that joke as well. I wonder if it was scripted. I suspect it may have been. It doesn't feel improvised. So um, I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll never know about that one. But again, as you say, there are a few bits of this movie that could do with a bit of tweaking. I don't particularly go for cuts. I think everything should be just as it was. But in this case, I think you just have to be prepared that it's a product of its time. It's not a dreadfully offensive product of its time, but you need to be prepared that there are some things that you would just not see or hear in a 2023 movie. And it's not full of those moments. I think, to a certain extent, because there aren't so many of those moments, the fact when they do land, it just feels all that worse. If it was a movie full of them, I'd just think, oh, fuck this piece of shit and switch it off. This, it's a movie that I've come back to over and over again. And when you hear these things in isolation, there's only maybe three or four of those moments over the course of the movie. But it makes them all that more of a standout moment when you actually come across them. That's not a fault of the movie. They just stick out like sore thumbs because there are so few of them. Different time, not excusing it, but you just have to know what you're going into before this. But it's not a movie that you're going to come out thinking, oh God, the 90s were so dreadful. It's a lot sweeter movie than that. It's just that there are some things that every 90s movie seemed to touch on at some point, this being no exception. But it doesn't ruin the movie. You just have to cringe a little bit and move on. Absolutely. And I think just losing those bits would benefit it for the new generation watching it, basically. I think if they could go into it without having to hear or see any offensive stuff. I think actually what would be another beneficial element is if they reinstated the extended cut of the bus driver scene. And it is actually quite a, well, I wouldn't say shocking as such, but a really surprising moment that I'm surprised they did actually consider. It's where he breaks character with the bus driver because the bus driver is making advances on him. And he breaks character and says, I'm a guy. And the bus driver, while shocked, he does actually say, oh, well, I still think you're beautiful and good luck to you. And I thought, wow, that's actually really ahead of its time. So I think that would have been nice to have kept that in. Yeah. Especially if they were going for a new cut. I mean, what's so amazing about this film is there's so much content there. They could chop and change it as much as they want. It's just so sad that Robin Williams is no longer with us. And I probably will say this every time we cover one of his films because it's just really horrible that he's not with us anymore his like won't pass this way again i'm pretty sure and it's a testament to how great a screen presence he was that we've been talking for over an hour about one of his movies and i'm sure that we'll be talking at length about the next robin williams movie we cover wherever we go with him because there's just so much to discuss about his performances and it's a tragedy that he's no longer with us, but we do have his movies and we can be reminded of what a massive talent he was. Definitely. I just feel it's much of a loss with this one because I would have loved to hear him talk about it now and be reunited with the cast. I think that would have been lovely to see them all back together reminiscing. But it is what it is. And as you say, we've still got his films and I can't wait to see more of them and talk about him a lot more on this podcast and again a shameless self-plug if you enjoyed this episode please go and check out our face-off where we talk about the 1992 film toys the movie that was released just before this one and then one hour photo again some very interesting performances so thank you so much for joining us i do wish we could chat longer and that's it for episode 111 of the hd movie podcast as always thank you for listening and thank you for joining us for this 30th anniversary special of Mrs. Doubtfire and indulging us in all our fun facts about the movie. So if you enjoyed this content and would like to check out future content and past content from us, you can follow us on social media, but on Facebook, X and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. We're still sticking to the X. We are trying to make X a thing. We're like main girls. We're trying to make Fetch happen. We're trying to make X happen but I'm still referring to it as Twitter in everyday life. It's great that you keep remembering to call it X, because to be perfectly honest, I don't at all. I'm useless at remembering social media names. I still call all four 4OD 
that's the channel for streaming service so i'm i'm rubbish at new names anyway enough of my problems with branding we are going to get to a movie in about three weeks time we're going to take a very short break but we are going to come back with a series of movies in the run-up to halloween so it's spooky content time so what are we going to be doing this year so excited for this so as you know last year we focused on uh, halloween of witches this year we are focusing on a halloween of werewolves which means there's only one movie that could kickstart this whole series what could it be well it is a horror classic it is 1981's an american werewolf in london which is one of my favorite movies of all time so i cannot wait to sink my wolf teeth into this one i feel a bad moon rising so until then stay safe everybody we'll see you soon The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.